0: naturally occurring psychoactive compound psilocybin is found in over 200 species of mushrooms despite their millennia of use by humans for mental and spiritual well-being they have been classified falsely among the most dangerous and illegal of substances locked away from those who need them most the psilocybin chronicles documents the individuals who courageously consume collect or cultivate these mushrooms to improve the quality of their lives Won't you join us as we welcome the return of psilocybin? Welcome to the Psilocybin Chronicles. I am your host, Eric Osborne. This podcast is intended for educational and harm reduction purposes only. Please do not mistake the information provided to be encouragement to engage in illegal activities. It is not. I would imagine that many of my listeners have heard of the Hefter Research Institute. For those of you who have not, I would like to share with you their mission statement. The Hefter Research Institute promotes research of the highest scientific quality with classic hallucinogens and related compounds, sometimes called psychedelics, in order to contribute to a greater understanding of the mind, leading to improvement of the human condition and alleviate suffering. You can find out more about their work specifically with psilocybin at www.hefter.org. That's H-E-F-F-T-E-R. They have done much to advance psilocybin research. Might I even go so far as to recommend you make a donation? The following excerpt from their website highlights their work with addiction. Millions of people struggle with addiction every day. Unfortunately, overwhelming evidence bears out the limits of current treatment options. Awareness of the opioid crisis continues to grow across the country. Alcohol dependency increased 49% in the first decade of the 2000s. In 2015, roughly 15 of every 100 U.S. adults continued smoking cigarettes, despite its role as the leading cause of preventable disease and death in the nation. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, includes people as young as 12 in its database. Adults age 18 to 25 are the biggest abusers of prescription opioid pain relievers. NIDA reports that every 25 minutes a baby is born suffering from opioid withdrawal. Addiction is a lifelong battle, threatening the health and welfare of millions. Those trapped by addiction often develop other health issues that, when unaddressed, can cost lives. Recent scientific findings suggest that psilocybin could help break the chain of addiction involving a host of substances, including cocaine, alcohol, and nicotine. Millions of lives could potentially benefit from the successful conclusion of this important research. Psychedelics could have an impact. We all know someone who has been impacted by addiction and substance abuse. Psychedelic research has the potential to change the statistics. Scientific research can help illuminate the potential answers psilocybin could hold for addiction. Completing this vital scientific research rests on the shoulders of groups like Hefter Research Institute to unlock the potential for psilocybin to ease the pain of addiction and suffering confronting millions of people. My guest on this episode is no stranger to addiction or science. And while it is not through psilocybin that his addictions were conquered, it it is psilocybin that seems to have given him a freedom that even breaking the chains of alcoholism couldn't provide. I have seen many people come to psilocybin after success with 12-step programs. All have been eager to share their knowledge that Bill Wilson, AA's founder, was a proponent of psychedelic therapy. Many of these individuals, years after their 12-step success come to psilocybin, and find that it takes them further, helps them clean out the cobwebs like nothing else could. It is going to be impossible to portray the breadth of Andrew's experience. He played a vital role that is not easy to define, and for some, it wasn't easy to understand. Andrew uses the phrase, out of control, a few times in this episode, and... Andrew, well, I still don't agree with that description... Even as you say, and so many of us witnessed, there was an intelligence working through you. You might not have been in control, but something was, and it was mystical. I don't know, folks, after so many times watching the psilocybin experience unfold, especially in the group setting, it seems that one recurring lesson is that we are not in control. And the more we think we are, the more we try to exhibit control. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's just when it's all the more likely we're to find ourselves in what people sometimes call a bad trip. Not infrequently, I've seen folks miss out on genuine mystical experiences because it didn't fit their imagined description. You see, oh, okay, so now I'm going to get in some opinion here. Um, I don't feel like it's fair to confine the mystical Experience to an angelic encounter or our mind's imagination of God. I mean, yeah, it can be that, but it doesn't have to be. Sometimes the screaming madman at the back of the bus is the best opportunity to encounter the divine. In fact, I would wager that we will most often find this aspect of the universal mind in just such unlikely places hiding in plain sight, as it were. I know that the closest glimpses that I have had, the nearest that my toes have stepped to approaching the unapproachable, to encountering that which cannot be named. Perhaps were those times when the supersaturation of my serotonin receptors by psilocybin molecules rendered me sufficiently insane. (laughs) There we go again with the labels. Sane insane, the apparent and temporary madness induced by psychedelics, I believe, is what can actually help keep us mentally fit. Andrew is a 45-year-old anesthesiologist living in the Northeast with his wife and three children. He joined me recently in Jamaica with his wife, seeking psilocybin treatment for his depression, anxiety, and an increasing sense of community disconnection and social isolation. Andrew struggled with alcohol abuse for most of his adult life, but has been sober for nearly eight years. Won't you join me in welcoming Andrew to the Psilocybin Chronicles? Andrew, welcome to the Psilocybin Chronicles. Thank you for joining me here and in Jamaica for the past week. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us, if you could consume Psilocybin mushrooms with anyone through time or history, who might that be and why?
1: So, in my mind, I had always thought that the Native Americans consumed mushrooms during times of, uh, of social strife within their tribe. And that may or may not be true, but that was a construct that, uh, I always sort of wondered about and, uh, uh, thought about how, how, how the mushroom might, might help the tribe. Um, and so if I could go back, I think it would be so beautiful to see, um, People who are so in tune in tune with the natural environment around them and uh how they incorporate uh the psilocybin into their community.
0: Excellent. Yeah, if there was uh a, a group of people that I would consume psilocybin with, uh I would say it would have to be initially an in an indigenous people, uh while the Native Americans we don't know of a of an extensive um, mushroom usage in the in na- northern Native Americans, definitely in South America, uh, there is a whole a whole culture built around psilocybin as just as you describe a communal therapy, a family therapy, where children as young as six and eight years old consume psilocybin alongside their parents and their community. Uh, And it does seem to be incredibly beneficial to resolving those interpersonal issues. Um, So tell us about the first time you were ever exposed to psilocybin.
1: Um, The first time I ate mushrooms was at a a Grateful Dead concert in the parking lot beforehand. I must have been 14 or 15 years old and um, had no idea exactly what it was I was ingesting. I did it with some friends. Um... And uh, I did have an excellent experience, um, although I do wish that uh, I had been a little bit more informed about what exactly I was ingesting. Mm. Um, I, I, I do remember the trip um, um, being marked by a lot of anxiety about whether I had been poisoned and <laughs> whether I, I was, had permanently lost my mind. I, I do remember that. Mm-hmm. But I also remember really enjoying the communal experience of the music. Did anybody in the group have a, quote-unquote, bad trip, or did it go pretty smoothly? It Actually, it went pretty smoothly. I, I got a lot of comfort out of knowing that we were doing it together. I was with maybe four or five very close friends, mm-hmm. and they provided a, a great deal of uh, security to me. Um, but, boy, do I wish I had had some, some more education about well, it. What
0: do you think time. you would
1: like to have beforehand? What would help to have educated you? Well, I think the real value of psilocybin is the, the opportunity for... Introspective personal growth. Um, yes, it certainly can enhance an external experience, but my sense is that the reason that we take them, or that the reason that they're given to us, really is about us and mm. not about the experience of the external mm. of of a concert.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and um, it's funny as a as a teenager, I I don't know how introspection would have changed my path. I, it seems like. It's the fully developed ego that maybe can take the uh, has the greatest benefit. Hmm. I don't know if that makes any
0: sense. It does make sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, I think that's very insightful. When did you? When was your next experience? And, and and had you even heard of magic mushrooms before you took them?
1: No, I had no idea what they were. Hmm. No, um, I had heard about LSD and uh i remember when we took it they're like this was going to be just like an lsd trip but not have ever having taken lsd i had no yeah. re- it really went went into it blind um the next time i took magic mushrooms was a much more uh spiritual experience because i um i went to see my brother he was a senior at the university of rochester and uh we took mushrooms together and uh that was his first experience with it hmm. um and uh to kind of go through it with him was absolutely magical. Uh, that holds a special place in my heart because he passed away 18 years ago on his motorcycle. So uh, whenever I do consume psilocybin now, I I, I like to think that I'm, I'm doing it with my brother. Mm. That's beautiful.
0: When did you become aware of psilocybin um, as
1: a sort of applied therapy? The first time I ever really became aware of psychedelic therapy in general was, um, I believe it was Michael Collins' excerpt from his book that was published either in the New York Times or um, The the New Yorker, possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just, it really, it made a lot of sense to me. Um, And that really sparked a, a journey towards gathering more information about it. Um, I went and uh, made some phone calls to, uh, I I visited the MAPS website and uh, found out about the different psychedelic therapists in my area and tried to contact several of them to set up a session. But they were adamant that they did not prescribe the mushroom. They were just um, very much there for integration after Mm -hmm. an experience. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, through a psychedelic therapist's recommendation of meditations And that's how I, I, I learned about you guys.
0: Oh, excellent. Uh, so let's talk about how you, how this experience here has been different from your others.
1: Um, I'm in a different place. Um, I think growing up, I didn't suffer from quite the level of anxiety and depression and social isolation um, that sort of drove me down here now. And so uh, I, I really felt like this most recent trip to Jamaica was one for a pure um, therapeutic benefit for me rather than a... Um, an experience of of fun and enjoyment. Uh, it's certainly not recreational. This is purely thera- therapeutic for me.
0: So, give us a little bit of what, of what that has looked like for from your perspective. And having come from a a history of light psychedelic use, how many times before coming here had you actually used psilocybin?
1: I would say probably maybe eight or nine times, okay. but always recreationally, never right. never in a therapeutic way. Right. So let's let's compare those two if we could. Previously, I'd always taken it um, at a rock concert, a music venue, or um, again with my brother at, at his university. It was an outdoor festival event, um, so it was always to enhance uh, the experience of. Um, of either the music or the festival but coming down here again um, was really just to seek a way to, um, to treat my anxiety and depression and how has that unfolded it's been <laughs> it's been the best experience of my life I really came down here with a sense of uh, of, of real social isolation and the psilocybin has a, allowed me to understand the those barriers that are preventing me from connecting with other people. And um, it's allowed me to to connect in a way I had never done before. And there was a lot of baggage that I was able to, to look at that I had just pushed down for such a long time. And um, a lot of it was a, a fear of my own death. And uh, I didn't realize how much a fear of dying had uh, driven the anxiety in in my daily life. And um, I've I've never been a very spiritual person. And after um, three sessions, three grams, seven grams, and then five grams, uh, I am fully, authentically convinced of a spirit that invests all of us and it's okay i will pass away but i am completely okay with it now and Mm. um it feels wonderful outstanding what about uh
0: how, how has this affected your reflection on
1: your relationship with alcohol good question uh i had been a Fairly hardcore alcoholic for a, a large majority of my life. I, the first time I got drunk, I was twelve, and I never really looked back. I've been sober for eight years, and um, my the early part of my sobriety was uh, a bunch of AA meetings and uh, learning that alcoholism was a disease unto itself. Um, but after coming down here and talking with people and the facilitators here, uh, they gave me a perspective that uh, that abnormal relationship with alcohol is not necessarily a disease, but it's a reflection of deeper trauma and troubles. And, uh, you know, it's always nice for an alcoholic to be able to shirk his responsibility and put the blame on a disease. Um, Unfortunately, I think that may be doing a disservice Mm. to alcoholics because it relieves them of the responsibility of Mm. that introspection. Mm. And, you know, I I think that I was using alcohol uh, really because I enjoyed the disinhibition Uh, I grew up in a very controlling household. Um, My mother was often very judgmental, and uh, sometimes her love could be conditional. And uh, I think my childhood was marked by uh, just a constant need for uh, approval from others. And uh, that left me with uh, just a a lack of confidence about myself and a constant need for, for approval. And when I used alcohol, I felt like I could speak with people and be around with people without worrying whether or not they approved of me. And so the journey this week has allowed me to realize that I approve of myself. I don't need the approval of others. Mm -hmm. And that's allowed me to, I just feel that I can grant a sense of, I, I can allow others to have their own self agency I don't need to pass judgment on them. Uh, I don't need to pass judgment on myself. And that has just been so revelatory to me. Would I ever drink again? Ah, That's tough. I trust myself enough now that I think I probably could. But I really enjoy sobriety. And uh, so I think that's my path. Mm -hmm. So I I don't plan on drinking alcohol Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't encourage you to. I don't ascribe to that being a
0: disease necessarily but i think someone who has been in the depths of severe alcoholism really um, would do well to make sure they are fully healed before engaging with that very powerful substance we far underestimate the power of alcohol I'd, i'd like it if you could explore if you don't mind the experience on the second dose where you two things one you mentioned several times um kind of comparing mushroom intoxication to alcohol intoxication and say you know kind of suggesting that we couldn't if we're having fun on mushrooms then people would just assume that we were consuming alcohol or behaving irresponsibly um and I'm interested in what your perspective on that is now in a
1: normal state of consciousness. So, I guess I'm not sure. Would you like me to describe what happened on the uh, the second dose? I, de-
0: I definitely want to get into that. Um, but I want to, before we get into kind of the channeling or communicating that it was... Um, For your own benefit, actually, this is is more so to kind of go back to where you had that almost, um, you you seem to be a bit torn about allowing the mushroom experience to unfold or embracing it because there was maybe a sort of um, some baggage around, quote unquote, intoxication.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. So... Um, growing up with an alcoholic father, um, I think there was always a deep seated fear of a loss of control. I think when I saw my father intoxicated, driving his car drunk, he was very okay. he was abusive to my mother. I remember him chasing my mom through the house and busting down the door um, when I was seven years old and that was extremely fearful for mm-hmm. me and so I think that i have a I have a real i had i had a real fear of losing control Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so um i think that the the second dose when i took seven grams i got to a place where i I was out of control i it was a it was a beautiful experience but also very scary for me um Mm -hmm. uh the I felt reborn as a child, and I was crawling around the campfire on my hands and knees. But then suddenly, I became um, a very loud preacher, and I was shouting at the top of my lungs around the campfire and encouraging people to come and join us, and and to appreciate the spirit, the communal communal spirit. But it definitely, uh, f- it was an out of control environment and it was extremely chaotic Mm -hmm. and i think ultimately what happened was the next day i was in a very dark place because how many times have i blacked out and not known what had happened and felt the need to apologize to Mm -hmm. people the next day for my out of control behavior and so i was i almost didn't show up for our our group share the the day after this had happened because I was just so afraid of, boy, people are really going to judge me, and I was ashamed. Mm. And then I sat down, and it was so refreshing because almost unanimously, people thanked me for just being me. They could really tell how therapeutic it was to me just Mm. to purge that. And I realized that I didn't have to apologize. That I did not have to associate this state of loss of control with shame. And that was just so beneficial to me. I would like to add, though, that during the experience of that, of that loss of control when I was preaching at the top of my lungs, I honestly feel that the message that I was trying to convey to the group was not mine. Mm. I believe it was given to me from something else that I don't feel the need to define, but it was a pressing urgency to convey this message Mm. about how important it is that we heal each other, that we are a community and the strength lies in coming together. Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh man, that's that's really it's it's so it's so beautiful to have been there from the start of that and see you through this process and see you realize that not only was it okay and you don't need to apologize, but you were helping. You were you were doing good, you were being some kind of a conduit for information, inspiration that people
1: needed. It's funny, I and it took me a while to process the benefit, and I, I, I see the benefit in a couple different ways. One was, yes, this urgent message of how we need to come together, but the other was, geez, when I was out of control around the campfire, that created a lot of dark demons for a lot of the other members of the group, and it was interesting to see how they reacted to an environment where there was a, a loss of control. Hmm. And it did seem that possibly the people who would come down here with their own problems with alcohol were the ones that seemed to be the most uncomfortable by mm-hmm. that situation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I w I wouldn't necessarily myself. I wouldn't use the language of, uh, bringing forth demons, but <clears throat> excuse me, it, uh, I definitely recognize how it served as a trigger, which is the
1: opportunity for growth and healing. Um, that's exactly, I'm, I'm sorry if I didn't say that well, oh, okay. but, it, but it, I, I didn't realize how much of an opportunity it was for other people mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to grow and heal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there is There is really something profoundly beautiful when you learn to dance with chaos and and watch it as it distills into order. It, uh, it's, it's just fascinating. And And what you experienced and what you shared and what you represented to the group uh, one of the most beautiful aspects of it, to me, uh, is how that was a mystical experience. Right? We have a we have a tendency to think that the mystical experience is I encounter God or I encounter angels or I, some whatever something from without. And you brought forth information. From some source that you we can't even name uh and it and it came through you and every everything that you said was a hundred percent true i c- cu- i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't disagree with any of it and uh it was really it was really so beautiful to watch you go through that experience and to sharing that with you uh when you came to jason and i and you said you guys are like my big brothers Mm. and we were like giving you permission to go do what you needed to do Mm. and just just the profound joy in your face (laughs) Uh, i will never forget that yeah i will never forget that it
1: really just was i mean then the farther i get away from the experience the more i realize just how mystical it was Mm -hmm. that's so well said and it's funny you know the the spirit of my brother you know uh it seemed to invest me as well, and it was as if I was just an amalgam of me and my brother and mm. then this spirit. And uh, I just want to just mention one of the the, me- the urgent pieces of the message, mm-hmm. and that is about the abuse of our children. Mm. And I think that abusing children is a, a transgression that echoes across generations. Because when a child is abused they grow up with the inability to raise their own healthy children mm-hmm. and they perpetuate the abuse and it, each generation that abuse is perpetuated. Uh, I do think that the victims of abuse by an adult are more likely to perpetuate an abuse on a child. 100%. I didn't,
0: I didn't mention this to you yet through the week, but, uh, the last podcast that the, uploaded before coming down, um, that was a big portion of the conversation, was a a gentleman who had been working to reverse um, the patterns of abuse that he had learned from his father towards his daughter. Uh, So, yeah, maybe if you get a minute to... You'd be interested to hear that, because it does uh, connect quite well to what
1: you were expressing the other night. Well, I just feel like the the psilocybin... um, is providing us with an opportunity to halt the echoes of that abuse mm-hmm. of our previous generation. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know it's funny I I can't wait to go home and be a better dad to my kids. Mm. I just even this morning you know I'd have been having some trouble communicating with my four, my, my 13-year-old son. And, uh, I tried to Skype him from down here in Jamaica and the connection was a little bad. And what did I do? I I asked him about his schoolwork. You know, I don't, I don't don't give a shit really about his schoolwork. He's a super smart kid. That's going to be fine. Um, but I was just trying to connect with him and I'm sure he may have heard the message that I was being judgmental and, uh, fuck, I, I blew it. So what I did this morning was I composed a really nice text to him and I said, Elliot, I love you so much i know you're a smart kid you'll figure school out that's not what i care about i care about you and Mm. you and i we need to text more what do you think about that and he texted me right back and it was so obvious that he was just so happy to hear me and we had this great conversation by texting one another and i felt blessed to have this mode of this new mode of communication with my son uh and i just it's just a wonderful thing and I just can't wait to to be a better dad because because of the mushrooms.
0: Mm, that's beautiful.
1: That's beautiful.
0: So, what do you what do you hope for this as as a physician, um, someone who is healthcare is your profession? Uh, what do you envision for the future of psilocybin as a publicly available therapy?
1: Oh, I mean, without question, I'm a hundred percent for it. I mean, I don't think anyone who would go through the experience down here would would come away from it thinking that it should be illegal or stigmatized I mean that's just completely that's ludicrous to me Mm. Um, I just worry about the barriers to making access more more readily available you know our our society it, it can be very judgmental and again it's that fear of the unknown and I think a lot of people are not educated about psilocybin and so they fear it and they they want to control it. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer in, in getting closer to legalization and seeing it less stigmatized is education of, of the public. Mm -hmm. Um, and what you're doing down here and getting the message out and, and, you know, sending people away from here who go and spread the word. I mean, the word is going to get out. It's just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I do, I do, work with short stories and i I, i'm working on a novel now and um boy i've got some great (laughs) material (laughs) for some stories i just i just hope that i i have the ability just to get at least a little piece down there that i can communicate just how mystical it is well you've
0: done a really outstanding job of communicating your experiences this week really and I I think I would expect to see that in your writing as well
1: thank you very much Mm -hmm. thank you thanks
0: so speaking of writing if you were to write a billboard slogan campaign for psilocybin across the United States
1: what would be what would we see as we traveled the highways Jesus you know I was thinking about this last (laughs) night during my my last trip man I I don't that's too much to answer I I'm just gonna have to be okay with the mystery there I'm sorry Eric i don't i don't think there's a right answer there um i mean what what's the point of the billboard is it to get more people down here to michael oh no this is not about michael <laughs> meditations this
0: is about this is about educating people around psilocybin and you actually what you just said to be okay with the mystery works great for me yeah <laughs> this is a thing that we can't box in we can't put our finger on it
1: maybe it should say be okay with the mystery and have a have some mushrooms growing out of the base of the billboard. I'm not sure.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. I, like <laughs> I got to think
1: about that for a little longer.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Andrew. You brought so much to this week, and it's really a pleasure to have you as a contributor to this podcast and to the uh, logging of experience that this hopefully will be for years and years that can be a source of education to others.
1: Thanks, Eric. I, I honestly feel so blessed to to be given the opportunity. Thank you. Likewise. And thank you, listeners, for
0: sharing this time with us. I'm going to leave you with what I feel is a very special contribution, thanks to Andrew. He mentioned dosing with Native Americans. Likewise, I have imagined that sharing this medicine with indigenous peoples, who must surely have known the medicine better than myself, would be an outstanding experience. I have listened to this excerpt several times, and each time it becomes a deeper teaching. There is so much wisdom here. Anyway, I will have the YouTube link for the video, Native American Teachings, by YouTuber IndoWolf in the show notes.
3: The butterfly flies in a circle. Watch him dancing through the winds, tasting the sweet nectar of life. He does not think of the short time he will be here. He cherishes each flower as a precious gift. His wings caressing them in silent joy. Each flower that touches our life is fragile.
2: Dance with it gently, gently, being thankful for the gift of them. Who know how to play can jump over the challenges of life. One who knows how to sing and laugh never brews mischief. One time I was walking around dressed like this, jeans, cowboy shirt, cowboy boots, big hat, braids, clothes from Salvation Army, 10 cents, 50 cents, a dollar. I was walking around and nobody ever saw me. I was invisible. No one ever said hi to me. All these guys were in $500 suit, white shirt, and neckties. They didn't see me. I was invisible. It was funny. Sometimes, it is very funny being a and an earthman. These funny clothes, funny hat, funny shoes. It camouflages me. I could go anywhere. Do anything. Maybe I look dumb on the outside, but I'm not. The spiritual power I wear is much more beautiful and much greater. We call it wisdom, knowledge, power, and gift, or love. These are the parts of the spiritual power, so I wore these. When you were that spiritual power, it will beautify your mind and spirit. You become beautiful. Everything that Chunkashila create is beautiful.
3: The old people came literally to love the soil, and they sat or reclined on the ground with a feeling of being close to a mothering power. It was good for the skin to touch the earth, and the old people liked to remove their moccasins and walk with bare feet on the sacred earth. Their tepees were built upon the earth, and their altars were made of earth. The birds that flew in the air came to rest upon the earth, and it was the final abiding place of all things that lived and grew. The soil was soothing, strengthening, cleansing, and healing. That is why the old Indian still sits upon the earth instead of propping himself up away from its life-giving forces. For him, to sit or lie upon the ground is to be able to think more deeply and feel more strength. Everything is possessed of personality, only different from us in form. Knowledge is inherent in all things. The world is a library. Its books are stones, leaves, grass, brooks, and the birds, and animals that share with us the blessing of the earth. We learn to do what only a student of nature learns, that is, to feel the beauty.
2: My grandfather once told me long ago, Do not walk in front of me, for I may not follow. Do not walk behind me, for I may not lead. Walk beside me, and together we will be friends. The earth is our mother; she nourishes us. That which we put into the ground,
1: she returns to us. If we are wounded, we go to our mother and seek to lay the wounded part against her to be healed. Animals too do this; they lay their wounds to the earth, and they.
0: Listeners, thank you for sharing your precious time with the Silla 7 Chronicles. May all of your journeys, both inward and outward, be safe and rewarding.